listening to the curiosity collective podcast i'm arpita and i'm deepika so here we are the last month of season 1 here we are indeed and i can't quite believe it's been almost 9 months of doing this it seems all the more surreal because we had this vision of being sorted and planned just last december and we had our excel sheets with too many columns and our campaigns all lined up and uh, we thought we had every parameter covered and then bam within 2 months of the podcast taking off we have the pandemic come and hit us front and center and you know some days it feels like i'm living in some sort of suspended time bubble cuz i mean it's crazy to think that the three of us uh, shrinidhi you and i were actually together here in bangalore just before the first lockdown happened in march and now we're in three different cities but also that somehow in the times of social distancing the length of the distance almost doesn't seem to matter we're all just at home and uh, i mean we could both be in mumbai and i would still not be able to see you yeah there's definitely something really surreal about this time i mean within our own bubbles our individual homes you can have days when it just feels like one long sunday you know there's crows at my window calling for fruit my partner and i go about cleaning the house and figuring out supplies you know cooking sitting chatting maybe watching a film and it all feels like for a little bit that everything's fine and there's order in our world but on the edges of your vision you know looming constantly outside this bubble is this big sea of doubt because really everything's far from all right and We're living in the middle of a pandemic, and there's really terrible things that are happening. True, making sense of what feels like a pause but isn't quite. It it it's hard. Ah, uh, but just before we go any further, I think we should share with our listeners that this month is going to be our last month for season one of the Curiosity Collective podcast, and so we wanted to do things a little bit differently. instead of opening a new conversation we thought we'd look back at the ones we've had this season and uh, try to sift what we've been learning and thinking especially about the idea of well-being you know when we began this conversation on why we wanted to open our little ngo somewhere in 2019 we'd been working a really long time in the development sector in india and i think we'd begun to feel very deeply in our bones the impact of the multiple crises of our times and at the time it meant particularly the climate crisis related disasters that we were seeing around the globe and they were not just you know environmental situations i mean these disasters had consequences which were socio cultural psychological economical just multifaceted and alongside you had all these huge global scientific research bodies like the un ipbs coming out with dire warnings of civilizational crisis and that was based on the human impact on the natural world Life on Earth is in the worst state in hundreds of thousands of years, and human activity is to blame. That's the key finding of the UN body tasked with assessing the state of our planet's biodiversity. Million species currently face the threat of extinction, some within decades because of habitat destruction on land and sea. Animal and plant species are being lost at a rate tens or even hundreds of times faster than in the past. 
These crises, as the reports were telling us, were strong indicators of us as a species making some seriously questionable choices. And uh, this was something that required collective reflection and from there to evolve to corrective action. Yeah, and that's how we decided that the space we wanted to create would be a learning ecosystem, you know, beginning with our podcast, where we could bring together progressive, thoughtful people and ideas and discuss how each of us can consider, imbibe, and then practice the change required to alter the course. And I think the second element which we should acknowledge is that it was also deeply personal. I mean, we chose to focus on Indian cities because they are the larger ecosystems within which we've all grown up. And we've seen them change massively through the last two decades of our lives and uh, through various aspects of our work in the past. Uh, we'd been grappling with the idea of how these spaces were increasingly stretched and might possibly be becoming less friendlier to live in. No, I think you're putting that rather gently. I mean, I remember the statistics we came across in the McKinsey report when we were researching this. And it said that by 2030, India is expected to have 590 million people living in cities. And that 68 cities would have a population of 1 million plus. And just to put that in perspective, I mean, the population of the U.S. is currently about 330 million. So the implications of such rapid urbanization are unprecedented. And, you know, just multiple cities are already showing signs of being under severe stress. You're right, of course. (laughs) They are truly very huge numbers to begin to grapple with or make sense of. And this sense of urgency to consider the future and how we adapt to it that multiple reports have been indicating was also very much present in the conversations we had. For example, in the case of waste, when we spoke to Punambir Kasturi of Daily Dawn, uh, she shared how large and overwhelming the issue of waste generation by one city could be if we viewed it at that level. In 2006, we were looking at two. 1,800 kilos, 1,800 tons to 2,500 tons. Now the figures are four, four and a half to six, some people say. So that's the growth, right, in 13 years. And the density of the city has tripled almost. And um, the composition of waste has completely changed. So yeah, she's explaining there how Bangalore in 2019 produced almost 6,000 metric tons of garbage per day, up from 2,500 to 3,000 tons in 2014-15, implying an almost doubling of waste production just within the span of a few years. And of course, Bangalore is far from alone in this. Uh, Cities have been struggling with their wastes and just about each one of them has a haunting story of one or many waste yards where waste piles up without segregation, polluting groundwater, being an absolute health hazard. But you know, the other conversation uh, that really made me sort of sit up was the one with S. Vishwanath from Biome Trust. Because as I was prepping for that conversation, I realized something quite disturbing. That in 2019, all our metro cities had come really close to being completely out of drinking water. Almost touching what is known as day zero uh, when taps run completely dry. And this major issue of scarcity of water is also acknowledged by the government in a Niti Aayog report 
which warned that 54% of India's groundwater wells are declining and 21 major cities are expected to run out of groundwater as soon as 2020. Wow, that's one more jolly fact to lighten up 2020. But I mean, you're right, of course, that from various perspectives, our cities might very soon be in very serious trouble. And issues like water and sanitation are at the heart of the idea of well-being. Poorly managed waste and water both can imply very serious health repercussions. And of course, then there's the stress of living in constant uncertainty of not being able to access the most basic resources. And that really brings me back to the pandemic, because, you know, in, in some ways, like you're saying, these issues have been building up and were behind why we wanted to explore the concept of well-being in cities. But, you know, in some ways, the pandemic and the lockdowns that ensued and the terrible humanitarian crisis of daily wage workers having you know, to leave the city in thousands, hungry and without wages and walking hundreds of kilometers back home. And the fact that our public health systems were and continue to be so overwhelmed it just told us how precarious life in the city already was for a huge number of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, working on that episode on the lockdown-related return migration was, I mean, really, really heartbreaking, I must admit. Just so many stories of endurance that should not be asked of anyone. You know, though, as we were discussing some time back, in one way, this is very hard to acknowledge the immense suffering that we are seeing now and also hardships that people are facing through this period of social distancing. But I think in our case, the reason for wanting to say this out loud and to explore and map the many problems our cities are facing was not to chalk out some dark prophecy of doom. Most certainly not. I hope, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, I think... um... I think how we've come to understand this is maybe how Rilke the poet once put it to his student. Why should you want to exclude from your life all unsettling, all pain, all depression of spirit when you don't know what work it is these states are performing within you? Why do you want to persecute yourself with the question of where it all comes from and where it is leading? You well know you are in the period of transition and want nothing more than to be transformed. I feel like copying that out and pinning it up on my softboard as we speak. Yeah, I I think it's, um, you know, it's taken me a while to really process this advice. You know, he later adds um, this little bit where he says, all one has to do is help it to be ill, to have its whole illness, and let it break out, for that is how it mends itself. You know, it sounds grim, but I think what he's simply trying to say is that our acceptance of the problem or the illness of its existence and of its power over us is the first step towards beginning to mend. And you know, in some ways, how I see it is that the pandemic and the climate crisis What they're doing is asking for our collective acknowledgement, our acceptance that something is not quite right. Until we begin to see this and accept it, we continue stalling and working against ourselves. Yeah, I see what you mean. It strangely reminds me of the stages of grief. And I say grief because there is loss. I mean, there's so much loss, right? Especially with the pandemic, you can see it all the more clearly. 
mean, there's loss of control, of steadiness, of predictability, of access to people we love and care for, access to planning our days and our lives. And, you know, all this might seem abstract, but they're very real parameters that allow us to feel settled and directed. And so the loss of it really is quite an overwhelming one. And the process of grief, you know, is now famously supposed to be in these five stages, right, of denial, anger, bargaining, depression. And then once you plow through the mix of these experiences and emotions, in time, you know, you're supposed to arrive at acceptance. And from that place of acceptance, we can then begin to consider what needs to change to make things better. Yeah, it's not likely that the word transformative change is thrown around in the context of what we're experiencing. I mean, unless we acknowledge and grieve for what was and is, how do we begin to know what's important? Because only by that hard-won knowledge are we granted the roadmap of truly transformative change. You know, as you say that, um, I'm reminded that the Greeks have this concept called metatonia, which is making a grand comeback, I think. I keep seeing it bandied about. And it, uh, it implies a form of transformative change of heart change that goes deep and reorganizes our insights. And that can only come through the hard task of dealing with our unpleasant realities. Well, we'll come to really breaking down transformative change in our next and last episode of the season. So let's get back to well-being and what we've been learning through this season. Well, the one really important thing for me is certainly just how well-being is so complex how it's an outcome of so many things that interact. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was made evident right from our episode one and two, where we explored mental health in cities. And Aparna Joshi of ICOL, a psychosocial helpline, shared what they meant by the psychosocial approach. So uh, I think we, were, we have been uh, trying to unpack this word called psychosocial for a very, very long time because people either talk psycho or people talk social and we are trying to combine both. So uh, what do we mean by that? We are trying to say that people's internal realities which are comprised of their own private thoughts, emotions or their bodies or their own experiences are not so isolated from the larger social context in which they are living. So those social contexts are very much a part of their narrative. They are either determining the distress, they are contributing to the distress that people are facing. Actually, this approach that emphasizes the relevance of social contexts and environments in shaping people's experience is also something that Jehanze Baldiwala from the Umeeth Child Development Center also emphasized in our most recent episode. So it almost feels like coming full circle. You know, Aparna also put it across very nicely with an example, if I remember this right. Poverty, unemployment are huge contexts, you know, particularly in city. So even struggles to find home and some safe spaces to talk, love, live, I think are missing. So we are trying to say that those larger social contexts are definitely contributing to your personal narratives and personal distress. So while providing this service, we are mindful of both. And uh, definitely conversations, therefore, I call holds, are not only addressing the personal distress, but are also trying to make people mindful of these larger social contexts. 
and in our very very modest way we are trying to figure out how can people be made more resourceful so that they can negotiate better with these larger social structures and really nothing makes this clearer than what we've seen with the return migration of the poor you know from cities to their native homes during the pandemic yeah i kept trying to capture the level of distress the lockdowns had precipitated but it all felt inadequate somehow Uh, poverty and sudden unemployment were exactly the reasons that people who had been hovering on the edge of precarity found themselves completely thrown over and the distress in this case was certainly not inspired by any biological reasons um yet as research has shown the conditions such as those that the migrants experienced can be severely detrimental to their holistic health in both the short and the long term As the lockdown extended into a period of 2 months, stories of Herculean journeys of more than hundreds and thousands of kilometers made on foot, cycles or hitchhiking began making it to the news. One 20-year-old migrant boy cycled 1700 kilometers in 7 days from Maharashtra in the west of India to reach his home state of Odisha in the east. On the road were not only laborers from the cities but also those who were out of work from other regions where factories and farms had come to a standstill undertaken in moments of deep duress with little or no access to food water or shelter through the length of their journey in the height of Indian summer with temperatures soaring to 40 plus degrees in many parts of the country These stories of gargantuan physical undertakings were also stories of distress, abuse, starvation, exhaustion and deep suffering. In their report, Jan Sahas noted how anguish, helplessness and desperation largely defined the distress calls they received, about 12,000 in just the span of 10 days. So yes definitely one thing that hits home is how multifaceted the idea of well-being is and that immediately makes it complex um there's just so many factors internal and external that mesh together to create a meaningful life actually it reminds me of the model we were talking about within the organization you remember um it was brown friend brenner's ecological systems framework for human development Of course it's it's one of my favorites really. I remember coming across it in my early 20s and um I remember having this absolute aha moment when I saw it. Yeah, I really love the way the diagram of the model helps represent some of that complexity we're speaking to. So what it does is that it puts the individual at the center with their inherent multiple unique qualities and then there are concentric circles that this person is at the center of. and each of these circles represents a systemic level so you know the first innermost circle is the microsystem then there's the meso exo and macrosystems so it's like one of those russian nesting doll sets you know one system nested within the next so the microsystem could represent for example your family and peer groups and then the larger circles like the exosystem reference larger contexts like communities and institutions and then the macro is about the attitudes and ideologies of the culture you're embedded in yeah what is most powerful about you know the systems based models and approaches is that even the psychosocial approach to mental health is that it not only tells us about the complex number of variables and layers that form the context of a human being 
but it also tells us something very powerful about the interconnectivity of things. You're right, that is powerful. Uh, there is not only the person context interrelatedness which is represented there, but also just how within an ecology multiple variables mesh and interact with each other. And in that sense, a set of concentric circles are possibly a simplification of the multi-relational nature of ecologies. Uh, but pictorially, it's useful in understanding the concept. Yeah, so it's interesting also that Brown friend Brenner first came up with this idea specifically keeping a child at the center and explaining how the ecology of the child functions. I think that's great because, you know, just last month we mapped something along the same lines in terms of the question of how children were experiencing and responding to the pandemic. And I mean, this is where we map the well-being of a child by keeping them at the center and beginning to see her or him nested within their immediate family, extended family, peer groups, communities. And then we look at those embedded within larger institutions that support them, whether it's, you know, school or healthcare. And then at another larger level, in terms of the policies which oversee these institutions and the cultural belief systems of the society that they're embedded within. And when you approach it like this, then you can immediately see that a response to augment a child's well-being is across all those systems. From policies which have guided and determined 10 standard boards, for example, or uh, work-related policies which determine if parents can take time out to care for their child, even as they're trying to work from home, or coming closer if the child has a sibling or a peer who is around to spend time with them through this period of social isolation. Yeah, I think it's a great methodology to adopt, you know, as its applicability in understanding well-being and then responding is quite powerful. It's also a great tool for reflection and if used from the perspective of keeping ourselves at the center as a citizen and then seeing the multiple layers of systems within which we are nested, it gives us some sense of an idea of which elements of our environment need tweaking and what actions we can take to then change them. And that's really quite empowering. You know, as we're speaking to the systems approach with regard to understanding how human beings interact with their social environments, what has been powerfully the theme to explore for this year is also how human beings interact with their natural environment. You're right. And, uh, you know, it's not just because of the climate crisis. Uh, the two-part series we did on understanding the roots of this pandemic especially spoke to this. The COVID-19 coronavirus is what is termed a zoonotic disease. And these are diseases that are caused by the transmission of pathogens such as viruses from animals to people. And what is disturbing is that zoonotic diseases are on the rise in the uh, last few decades. And the reason for this is human impact on ecosystems. Zoonosis threaten economic development, animal and human well-being, and ecosystem integrity. Over the last few years, several emerging zoonotic diseases made world headlines as they caused or threatened to cause major pandemics. These include Ebola, bird flu, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS, Rift Valley Fever, Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome or SARS, West Nile Virus and Zika Virus Disease. Researchers studying records that date from 1940 to 2004 detected an increase in the rate of emerging infectious disease over those years. Of the 335 documented events, 60.3% were zoonotic and 71.8% of the zoonosis originated in wildlife. 
Yes, that was shocking to consider really from the perspective of the current pandemic. I mean, I don't think most of us even now realize that this pandemic is caused by the huge impact of human intervention on natural systems. You know, during that time, I was reading this fabulously interesting book called Spillover by David Quammen. It was published somewhere in 2012, and uh, it follows the trail of multiple zoonotic diseases to demystify them and understand their origins. And in the book, he clearly says this. He says, make no mistake, they are connected. These disease outbreaks coming one after another. And they are not simply happening to us. They represent the unintended results of things we are doing. They reflect the convergence of two forms of crisis on our planet. The first crisis is ecological. The second is medical. Um, and did you also tell me that he says um, that the most serious outbreak on the planet Earth is that of the species of Homo sapiens? <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's true. And uh, as an old Nacho associate, it's amazing the places he travels to, the stories he traces, from the deepest and remotest of African jungles to highly classified infectious disease labs in America and Russia. And that is his conclusion. And, and it's not only his conclusion, it's the conclusion of scientists around the world. Uh, we even quoted Sonia Shah, journalist and author of the book Pandemic, Tracking Contagion from Cholera to Ebola and Beyond. And she says pretty much the same thing. We've lost the bigger picture, the connections between social and political health and environmental health. So what we're seeing right now is an intense amount of reductionism. Moving forward, what we have to see is that pandemics, climate disasters, all of these are related to our huge footprint on the planet. We've been using up a lot of natural resources, and now the bill is coming due. We're going to lurch from disaster to disaster to disaster until we start to really change the fundamental relationship between us and nature. And that's something that we're hearing from all the biggies now. All the large scientific institutions are putting their weight behind the urgent need for rethinking how we as a species engage with our environment. You know, bodies associated with the UN have always been careful about how they represent difficult issues, trying their best to not sound too cataclysmic, more open to conversation and keeping it neutral toned. But in the last few years, we're seeing a huge difference in that language. Uh, we're hearing them outrightly say that we need to challenge business as usual and begin to work on transformative change. This urgency is significant because it tells us something about the crossing over of tipping points. Yeah, so in some ways, this is the final really big circle within which we're all nested. You know, it's reminding me strangely of this Carl Sagan quote, which says, Cosmos is a Greek word for the order of the universe. It is, in a way, the opposite of chaos. It implies the deep interconnectedness of all things. It conveys all for the intricate and subtle way in which the universe is put together. That is a beautiful quote. And yes, this deep interconnectedness of all things is what seems to be the strong underlining message of the multiple crises of our times. And really, it seems a fair extension to the idea of an ecological system's approach to human well-being to also acknowledge and include the most basic context we all exist within, our natural environments. 
Yeah, and a lot of research has been coming out in support of this reiteration of our ties with the natural world. I mean, even if we enter it from the mental and physical health perspective, and we've shared in our campaigns and our multiple episodes, the startling amount of research that's piling up in favor of how improving our relationship with nature also leads to improvements in our overall well-being. So where does all this bring us, you think? Well, I think it's useful to summarize. And so tell me if this covers it. For one thing, we need to rethink the industrial world idea that saw humans pitted against nature. And overwhelming amounts of research are showcasing that human well-being is not separate and at odds with planetary well-being. So that is one of the big questions of our times. How do we reconstruct our relationship with the natural world? And two, I think there is the core nature of well-being itself that we need to acknowledge. That our individual well-being is tied to that of our communities and of our larger social and environmental contexts. That apart from being multi-layered and multi-dimensional, well-being is also cross-disciplinary. And by that I mean simply that we cannot speak of the issue of human health and not connect it to, for example, the health of our ecosystems. And we've seen air pollution, poor sanitation and waste management all of these are intrinsically linked to our health, which is why one of the new novel approaches has been the One Health Movement, which recognizes the growing connection between the health of animals, people, and the environment. And of course, at the heart of all this is the core idea of interconnectedness. So do you think that covers it all? Yes, that sounds about right. And, uh, you know, strangely, it reminds me of our conversation with Chitra Vishwanath, the architect who basically disliked the idea of all designations and titles, but ultimately, when compelled, chose to call herself an architect of an ecosystem. Yeah, I can see why you're reminded of it, because, you know, really, I think even in the conversation, she was implying that all of us are in some ways tasked with this, that in all our actions, you know, grand or small, we're all architects within ecosystems based on the choices we are making about who we want to be or what values we represent. And also, I think what came out powerfully in the conversation with Chitra was the idea of monetary valuation or economic value being a very limited, if not harmful way of understanding the world around us. You know, there's a very nice Robert Kennedy quote that we've uh, even put on our website, I think, uh, that says this very eloquently. And here he's speaking in the specific context of the limitations of uh, the GNP. Uh, he says, The gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. Oh, I love that quote. And I think, you know, even though this is far from a popular idea, for the last decade or two, we have actually been seeing countries challenge the idea of the GDP representing, you know, how well a country is doing and how citizens are doing holistically. And so it's interesting also to consider it, but the person who first came up with the idea of GDP, Simon Kuznets, also stated quite clearly that distinctions must be kept in mind between quantity and quality of growth, between its costs and return, 
and between the short and long term, that the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. Yeah, we seem to have lost that somewhere, but I think the time is here for us to reclaim the idea of well-being being larger than GDP. So many countries are already showing us the way here. Uh, our tiny neighbor Bhutan was a pioneer in this conversation with their happiness index and framework. And in more recent times, we're seeing countries like New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland take the lead. You know, when we began this conversation, I was a little afraid that we were getting a bit, you know, gloom and doom. But look at us. I mean, we've come to a good place, haven't we? I think it really helps to know that we're not stagnantly standing in old ideas and you know that change, even if it's small, it's taking place. Totally agree. Um, in these times when we are in our little individual bubbles, like we said, our homes, one can't help but wonder, does it matter if I do this little thing of not consuming too much or of composting my waste? Am I making a difference? Am I not too small? I think in those times of doubt, it's always been useful for me to look at the full ecological system of well-being and to find solace in it. Because within this large spread of layered systems, there might not be people immediately in my micro-environment who think or act like me. But there are people and institutions and other such spaces which are functioning across various parts of the web which do share the values I embody. True, that idea of interconnectedness is also powerful because in its knowledge rests the idea that we don't have to do things alone and that by nurturing connection, we build resilience and possibility. And maybe it's apt that we close this episode with the words of one of our favorite writers, Wendell Berry. And he says, Only by restoring the broken connections can we be healed. Connection is health. And what our society does its best to disguise from us is how ordinary how commonly attainable health is. We lose our health and create profitable diseases and dependences by failing to see the direct connections between living and eating, eating and working, working and loving. Dear listener, thank you for being on this journey with us. We're a tiny NGO and your attention and love has been deeply meaningful to each of us. We hope you'll continue to share this journey of exploring well-being and transformative change in action in Indian cities with us by joining our newsletter and being part of our social media spaces. In our last episode for the season, we look at the wisdom we've gleaned from the concept of transformative change in action from season one of the TCC podcast. We would absolutely love to hear from you on what you've thought, felt, and explored as you've heard our episodes. You can write to us at team at thecuriositycollective.org. You could also explore the other episodes of the season at www.thecuriositycollective.org. This episode was made with the support of Srinidhi Raghavan and is produced by the Bangalore Recording Company.